KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando, and today we're going to church. I have to confess, I'm not a religious person, but there's one thing I hold sacred, movies. You can laugh and think I'm silly, but cinemas are my church. And if you think films are just trivial, think again. Governments seek to silence filmmakers and ban films, so somebody thinks they can be important. And yes, I know there are plenty of bad movies out there, and insignificant ones as well. But at their best, movies are works of art. I've experienced enlightenment at the cinema and even moments of transcendence. Movies have taught me about compassion and tolerance, and through film, I've found a community of fellow believers. Those are the trappings of many religions. For those who do see cinema as church, there's no more devout congregation than those who consider themselves part of the TCM family. Once a year, these cinema zealots make a pilgrimage to their mecca, the TCM Film Festival in Hollywood. The 2016 Film Festival took place April 28th through May 1st. I thought it would be the perfect place to talk about film with people who love it the most, at a place that elevates watching a movie to something akin to a religious experience. For this podcast, I'll be speaking with Charles Tabish and Millie DeCherico of TCM, as well as with key members of the TCM Party social media community. Plus, I'll have a few clips from some of the presentations at the festival. I want to start with a highlight from the festival, a film, or more accurately, an event, that delivered the kind of transcendent cinematic experience that I hope everyone can have at least once. It was called Voices of Light, The Passion of Joan of Arc. It was a presentation of the 1928 silent film with a live orchestra and chorus. While waiting in line for this film about a teenage warrior who claimed she'd spoken to God, I met a fellow cinephile, Joel Williams. So we are here at the Turner Classic Movie Film Festival where it seems movie viewing is at its high point. So what I want to find out from you is, what is the movie going experience like for you? What is a cinema like a church for you? What is this experience like? That's a great question. It's, it's, it's kind of like a church. I think that's a, a good analogy. You're in a room with a lot of people in the dark. It's definitely a different experience watching a, a film in a theater with other people than it is at home on television. You have different reactions to things. You are more careful about what you do, like unwrapping candy, like you don't check your cell phone and that kind of thing. So it's definitely a more uh, elevated experience. And here at the festival, The experience seems to be elevated even more because they tend to take a lot of great care with how a film is presented. Absolutely. They uh, are very good with presenting films in their correct aspect ratio and they try to get films on 35 millimeter 
there's a lot of people out there that appreciate showing the films on uh, physical media like 35 millimeter versus digital and the people that come to this event come to it in part because they know that the organizers of the event take the care to do these things correctly. You mentioned that you tweet a lot and the Twitter community is very active for TCM. Can you tell me about what that's like and do you partake in things like the live tweeting? Oh yeah, there's a, a, a group of us on Twitter that will tweet along while we're watching a film at home on TCM. We'll uh, tweet using the hashtag TCMParty and we can comment about the film, what we like about it, what we don't like about it, comment about classic film in general. It's a community of people that have grown together over time and we actually look forward to meeting each other here at the festival, those who can come. Uh, every year, and uh, we've met, we've all made a lot of friends online doing this. Do you feel that TCM does something special for this event that tends to bring a particular kind of crowd out for the films? I think in general, what they do is they're really good with taking care of their people that love these films. They're really good at bringing talent in to do interviews before the films and doing special events like. Club TCM, they have a wide variety of choices for people in every time slot. I think other film festivals you might have to just see films that you're not familiar with or films that you wouldn't normally want to see and you're forced into seeing it anyway. For me, they really, TCM really cares about the, their, their fan base, so they really take care of us here. Talk a little bit about the experience in terms of how many films do you try to cram in? Are you running back and forth between theaters? Is it a packed schedule? Do you have leisure time? What's it like coming to the festival? Yeah, so there's like there's a couple theories people come here with. One is the one that I subscribe to, which is get your money's worth, which means go to as many films as you possibly can. I generally avoid the Club TCM events. I generally avoid the extra events, although I did get my... Ileana Douglas book signed today at her book signing. The other theory is go to three films a day or two films a day and go to the Club TCM events and kind of take it easier. That's what my wife does. So we come down here, we have two different schedules. I'm running between different theaters and she's like, I'll be at the house or the apartment if you need me and give me a call. And so far, we're not at the end of the festival yet. We're about at the halfway point. What has Have there been any really memorable experiences for you so far this year? I would say not yet. I'm getting ready to walk into the Passion of Joan of Arc, which is, for me, the must-see event of the festival. For me, when they announced that, I knew no matter what else was playing against it, I would go to this film to experience it. They're going to have a live uh, orchestra here and a chorus, along with showing the silent film. So this is going to be something very special, I think. In the past, TCM Film Festival has brought a live orchestra to play for a silent film. What does that add to the experience for the film goer? I think it adds a lot. For example, I think two years ago they ended the festival with uh, the general with a live orchestra at, at uh, the Chinese Theater. And I think that having a live orchestra adds something real to the experience of watching the film in the theater with other people versus just having a soundtrack played along with the silent film. I caught up with Joel after the Joan of Arc screening. 
He couldn't quite find the words to describe the experience, but he agreed it was a religious one, something truly transcendent. Hearing that choir sing as the film opened gave me goose pimples. Live music and voices in a theater brought a dimension to the film that went beyond anything gimmicky 3D can do. It filled the theater in a way that made it feel like a high mass in a cathedral. Not every screening was quite this rewarding, but TCM makes an effort to bring in people who can offer enlightenment on what we're about to see. Take the screening of He Ran All the Way. It's John Garfield's last film and directed by John Barry and written by Dalton Trumbo. All three were deeply affected by the blacklist. Before the film, Todd McCarthy interviewed the director's son, Dennis Barry. Um, I think just one other quick question, if we're anxious to see the film, but is there anything uh, you'd like to say about any of these other key people who worked on He Ran All the Way, Dalton Trumbo, Hugo Butler, Guy Endor, James Wong Howe? Because it's a, it's a very distinguished, and, and really, except for James Wong Howe, all people very severely affected by the black well, let's say that James Wong Howe, first of all, is an extraordinary <coughs> DP and true, true, what they did with the noir genre a little bit before he ran all the way was more German expressionism readapted and revisited to American Hollywood noir kind of vision of film. But James Wong Howe took it a step further and made it that same extraordinarily raw, realistic but at the same time with extraordinary beauty. And you'll see in the film is a scene where he puts water on the street and it's only lit by the reflection of water on the street so that you have this extraordinary raw impression. And it's, it's one of the first times it was done. And you know, at the same time you could say that Dalton Trumbull, who was the wonderful screenwriter, wrote He Ran All The Way. There's a few changes that Hugo Butler did and John Garfield with Bob Roberts created this production company and, 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 and Andrew, John Garfield produced the film and he was looking for a way to talk more about where he came from and, and, and portray characters that are desperate, doomed, or vagabonds who have, who have no chance of getting out at the beginning of the film. And it's very, in that sense, very noir. And we could say that all those people were under the American threat of the Red Scare, under the uh, under what you know was the McCarthy era, where anybody who had a progressive point of view, you didn't have to be a communist, you were in danger of being blacklisted. So that, in a sense, there's a sense of urgency, a little bit of sense of paranoid threat and claustrophobia in the film that comes from all those people working on the film, because they were all, except James Wong Ho, afterwards blacklisted. Francis Ford Coppola was on hand to talk with TCM's Ben Mankiewicz about the conversation. Coppola is best known for the Godfather films and Apocalypse Now, but this smaller, more personal film reveals his masterful storytelling. What interested you about this story, about the conversation? Well, I'll, the truth is, number one, I had seen a film called Blow Up. And I just thought Blow Up was a beautiful film. Thank you. Well, thank you for Michelangelo. So when I saw Blow Up, I was just so impressed. And, you know, when you're young, I think it's okay to sort of follow in the direction or imitate someone you admire because you really can't imitate them. You're going to try to imitate them, but you're going to end up with what you can do. So I set out to um, 
to do a, a, a film. And I had been having a conversation with a, a director you may know of named Irvin Kirshner, who had done the second Star Wars film, who was an older guy and very, very nice to us younger uh, fledgling directors. And I was talking to him about how interesting it was that there was technology now, microphones you could put across a city block and aim at the mouth of a person and actually get that person's conversation. And wouldn't it be interesting if there was a mystery story in which some parts of it were left out and you had to piece together what was really going on? And you know, what is so meaningful to a younger filmmaker is that he was encouraging. He said, yeah, that's a good idea. You should, you should try to do that. Uh, and, and, and so I, I, with the vision of wanting to do something like Michelangelo's Blow Up, and with the fact that Irvin Kirshner had encouraged me from my surveillance idea, I began to try to write it and didn't exactly know what I was doing, but when you write very often, you don't know. You just set off on telling the story as best you can, and that's what I did, and I wrote the script. Mankiewicz asked Coppola about the costuming choices for Gene Hackman's character, Harry Call. You put him, or you and whoever worked on the costumes, you put him, I think in every scene, he's wearing a, a very particular trench coat. Uh, I've never seen any trench coat like it. Um, it is certainly given the character not stylish, um, <laughs> but it, it is, I think, clearly, deliberately revealed, uh, revealing about who this man is. Well, I've talked on my occasions of talking to younger filmmakers about how you make so many decisions a day, I and mean, basically, should she have long hair or short long? Should she wear slacks or dress dress? Should she should it be like a sports car or, or a van or a sports car? You just make these decisions a hundred a day. But when I'm stuck and I don't know the answer, I always, in my mind, have what the theme of the movie is in a word or two. In the case of the conversation, the theme was privacy. So when they asked me uh, what kind of coat do you want him to wear, they showed me a half dozen detectives. He was sort of like a detective, I guess. A surveillance guy, the closest you could say would be like a detective. And I wasn't really sure, should I put him in like a real, you know, Humphrey Bogart trench coat? or? And they showed me a few, and one was a plastic sort of raincoat, trench coat that was transparent. And I thought, oh, if this is about privacy, it's interesting to have them in a transparent raincoat. And that's how that choice got made. And, uh, well, um, it is... I'd like to say one last thing about the conversation. Oh, yeah. I made. The conversation is an interesting story. Folks, have many of you heard of the phrase called sound designer? Yeah. Right, I'm going to tell you where that comes from. So uh, when we were doing, uh, when we were about to do the conversation, a colleague of mine, someone who's a wonderful talent and was one of George Lucas's USC buddies, named Walter Murch, who was a wizard, <laughs> a wizard in sound. And I had this idea to have Walter Murch actually be the editor. He was pretty much known as a sound editor in those days, but be the editor of uh, the conversation, and indeed he did that. But we were having trouble with the union because they, he wasn't in the union, and, and he absolutely, uh, we said, well, he's going to do the sound, the sound, and they said, no, 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 he cannot have the title editor. He can't be sound editor or any kind of editor. So I went to Walter and said, Walter, well, you can do it, and you should do it, but you can't be editor. He said, well, call me sound designer. 
and that's where that phrase came from. And Walter did edit the movie and did that extraordinary job in both the editing of the film and the fantastic sound design that supports it all is the work of Walter Murch. Seeing the conversation more than four decades after its original release made me appreciate it all over again and realize how little innovation we've had in the realm of sound. When I saw it, I thought the floodgates would be open to all sorts of clever sound design for film. But sadly, sound is still an underused and underappreciated craft. Another somewhat forgotten film from the 70s that was resurrected at the film festival was John Huston's Fat City. It's a film about characters on the fringes of life. Eddie Muller moderated a discussion with the film's star, Stacy Keach, who did a spot-on imitation of director John Huston. He sat down with me and he said, uh, uh, Stacy, I want you to read this book. <laughs> then I want you to read this script. And I want you to play this part. <laughs> Billy Tony. He's a, he's a washed-up boxer in the back of the ring. And you're going to work with Jeff Bridges. Well, I was thrilled about that because Jeff and I are friends. You know, we've known each other you know, for, for a long time with his brother Bo. And uh, so that was, that, that's, how, that's how it began. One thing I wanted to ask about this and, and what you take away from this film and what this film is about. Watch this film carefully or, or read Leonard's book. I mean, this is an extraordinary story about surviving when life gives you nothing. Well, you know, one of the, one of the problems, when, when the film first came out, it did not do well at the box office at all. And, uh, it, it, and the reason that the studio gave, because it's about people who start at point A and they end up at point A. <laughs> they never, they never, it's not, it wasn't, this was right before Rocky, by the way, right before Rocky came out. And Rocky made a Cinderella film about a guy who starts going in and goes all the way to the top. That was, that was more in the spirit of what the American dream was embodying at the time. But this was a film about beautiful losers, uh, people who, who were struggling, who struggled. But I think one of the great things that Leonard Gardner contributes is his insights into people who are searching for their own identity and what they want to become and what their dreams are and what their fears are. And he really got into that. And it gives a tremendous amount of depth, I think, to, the, to all the characters. One of the people responsible for making sure that films like The Conversation in Fat City are not forgotten is Charles Tabish. He's senior vice president in charge of programming and production at TCM. When I interviewed him, I admitted that I had to leave a screening of Shanghai Express to come talk with him. He was upset that I was missing a film and said we could reschedule. But I pointed out that with so many films playing, I was bound to have to miss something to do the interview. So he offered to sneak me back into the screening after the interview so I could see the rest of the film. Now that's someone who loves movies. In contrast, AMC theaters recently floated an idea to allow cell phones into some screenings. That stirred a surprising backlash from filmgoers on social media. So I began my conversation with Tabish by asking if he thought it was accurate to say that some people view movie theaters as their churches, and allowing cell phones would be sacrilegious. 
Oh, well, without question. And I think if you come to the TCM Classic Film Festival, that's where you'll see those people. Or at least, uh, I think uh, of the TCM attendees, all of them would describe it that way. You know, I certainly understand and respect AMC feeling that, that they need to change with the times, that the times have changed. But, but not everybody wants to go in that direction. And certainly our audience doesn't, and I don't. And, and as you know, at, at our festival, we're pretty adamant about, and we, you know, we make an announcement before every single screening, turn off your cell phones, because our people want to watch the big screen and, and, and see that uninterrupted in the way it was meant to be seen. For your fans, I would say that this is kind of a mecca for them. <laughs> I hope so, and I think so. I think it is. It's a special time. It's a special weekend. It's a time that people can really immerse themselves in the world of classic film and be around other classic film fans and enjoy them uh, and share them, and I think that that's wonderful. So I, th I agree. I think it is a, a great time and, and and over the seven years we, we've been doing this now I think people there are people that look forward to it all year which is great and in particular this year one of your sidebars or themes does have to do with religious films it, it certainly does well our, our broader themes moving pictures or film that emotionally move you and religion doesn't fit into a lot of broader categories but that's one that it does fit into and so it was it's been an opportunity to to show some religious films which are an important part of film history and since films have been made they uh, religious films have been popular um, and just like any other genre there have been some good ones and some bad ones but there are some truly great ones and uh, so we've shown a couple here at the festival this this year and uh, I'm really happy about that one of the films that it really does merits the term transcendent which was the Passion of Joan of Arc, which you guys didn't just show. <laughs> you brought some extras for it. So explain what happened at the screening and what went into putting this together, because it was phenomenal. It was produced by a couple of people on our staff, um, Scott McGee and Genevieve McGillicuddy and Anthony McAllister, uh, who deserve the credit for putting it all together. About maybe a couple of two, two years ago, perhaps, Mark Sumner, who is a professor up in Northern California, and he ha is also a conductor, and he's conducted a performance of Visions of Light, which is Richard Einhorn's score to Passion of Joan of Arc. And it's, I've seen the, the DVD of the film and I've listened to the score and I've always considered it one of the most beautiful film scores for any silent film that I'd ever heard. So when Mark suggested it, I thought it was a great idea. It takes a little time to put these things together and it didn't fit last year, but this year it was a perfect fit. So uh, we decided to give it a try and, and we, we take the Egyptian theater, which is a wonderful theater to do a silent film with a, with a live orchestra. Uh, we've got an orchestra and a chorus, and the chorus adds just a dimension that is really amazing. And, you know, you, I think you used the word transcendent, and I think uh, I would agree. I think it was a really special experience to be there live for that. It was wonderful, and, and I'm, my hope is the people that went there uh, feel that way, because I, I did, and I heard from a couple people that did as well, and I thought it was pretty special. It really was like a church in there. <laughs> well, yes, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you, Beth. That's, that's great great to hear. The other thing that makes this festival very special is you guys take a lot of care in terms of how a film is presented, in terms of the print quality, restored prints, 35 millimeter prints. Tell me a little bit about what you do to search out some of these films and, and get these films that are at the, the peak quality. Well, we certainly try, and, and we don't always succeed because sometimes there are films we really want to play, and the only thing that's available is a print that's not in great shape, and we have to decide, is it worth playing the, the, the print that might not be so great or not even playing the film at all? And there are times where we have to make that call. But 
we always try to get the best thing available. There are always situ situations that are touch and go. This year, um, there's a film called One Potato, Two Potato that I really love. I really wanted to play. We couldn't find a print. The distributor, Rialto Films, ended up finding a print in England um, that was in terrible shape. They shipped it over here so that our partners at Photochem could take a look at it and rejuvenate it. And Photochem did an amazing job and it ended up looking beautiful. And we had the, the director of the film there who was marveling at it because he has not seen a print look that good since it was released in the early 60s. There is no doubt that the home life of the child Ellen was close to the ideal. By every standard, the home provided by Julie and Frank Richards was more than suitable. You might say it was superior. By every standard, except one. The world we live in, the standard of our society. I'm speaking, of course, of prejudice, of the color line. Principles in a biracial marriage, particularly black and white, become, in a sense, pariahs, belonging neither to the white community or the Negro community. We can protest such bigotry, we can fight it. We cannot ignore it. It must be taken into consideration in determining this child's future. How will the background of a Negro home affect this child's chances of happiness in an adult world? That is not to say these difficulties cannot be met and overcome. But are we justified in taking that chance? particularly when she has an alternative, a white father capable of her support and anxious for her custody. We, we, we make every effort to, to make things look as good as we can. We work with the best uh, technical team, Boston Light and Sound, who um, it really, they know their stuff better, better than anybody. And I think, um, you know, Genevieve, who, who puts the entire festival together, made, has made a lot of smart decisions, and, and among the smartest was hiring Boston Light and Sound to do the technical side of things for us. And you guys have, in the past, struck prints that were specifically for the festival. <laughs> well, this year as well. I mean, in fact, this afternoon we've got Children of a Lesser God coming with Marley Matlin. No good, no DCP exists, no good material existed. Paramount had the underlying material, so we worked with them uh, to create a print. And, and every year there are, there are films like that, where um, uh, this year with Warner Brothers we made a, a new print of Tea and Sympathy, again working with Photochem. That's, that's part of, of the process. Sometimes there's a film we really want to play. The materials exist, but the actual print, playable print doesn't exist, so we're able to work with the material to, to help fund the creation of a print, or like I said, work with Photochem to get it done. And at a number of these screenings, there are people representing other organizations that are striving to do film preservation. You have the Film Noir Foundation, there was someone from a group saving 3D films, mm -hmm. the Vitaphone. Yeah. Are those partnerships or, or organizations you look to work with? Absolutely. It's great for us and hopefully it works for them. I mean, we want to, we're all on the same team. We all want to preserve film history. We all, all want to showcase different aspects of film history. And so we are eager to partner with groups like that and hopefully they get some value in working with us. A lot of them are more specific than they are, than we are. For, you know, you mentioned the 3D, they, you know, they're focused on 3D or Vitaphone and Rodden Hutchison is 
is focused on on Vitaphone, uh, the Film Noir Foundation, obviously Film Noir. You know, we're more broad than that. We, we like all of them to be part of this and part of the TCM family. And for us, it helps us. It helps us program this festival, and we really appreciate that. And hopefully we can help them out a little bit as well. Can you describe for someone who maybe has never walked into the Chinese theater what that experience feels like? Because that is an amazing venue. Well, it's amazing. It's historical. It's beautiful. And, you know, I think you walk in and you feel like you're in a movie palace and you feel like you're, you're, you're experiencing history, film, movie history and you're walking past the handprints and the footprints that, that all the great stars have, have created over the years. That's one of the great things is the people that come here from all over the country and somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of our pass holders are not from the L.A. area. But for, and for them to come to the heart of Hollywood, and in the heart of Hollywood, the Chinese theater is really the kind of showcase, key, golden age venue. And I think that that history is, is part of what the festival hopefully is about. And the Egyptian, too, of course, has so much great history. So, so I think people really um, respond to that, and it's, it, it feels big and grand, and, and, uh, and it's just a wonderful place to watch a movie. I think I, it was last year that I saw Hunchback of Notre Dame in that venue, and it was just, I, people were crying next to me. <laughs> I w- that was an amazing screening because it was, I think, at 9 in the morning, and it was a packed house for a 1939, you know, black and white film. And it was just uh, wonderful, and I think that adds to the experience for the audience when you're watching with other people and then you, the, the emotion feeds off of the person next to you and and it sort of makes it even a, a, a greater and f- more fulfilling experience. Are there any films this year that you feel particularly proud of getting? Well, I mean, The Passion of Joan of Arc was sort of the, the one that I was most excited about. I mentioned One Potato, Two Potato. Brian's song I'm exci- I was excited about because it was a made-for-television movie, but a great film, and I was really um, happy to be, to be able to show it. This year you guys are also launching the Backlot, which is kind of a fan club sort of thing. Talk about why you wanted to do that and what kind of things that's offering to people who are TCM fans. Well, so I should say I'm not sort of on the front lines of that project. So, uh, you know, we have we have an element of kind of hardcore fans of classic movies and, and of TCM of wanting to know more, be part of kind of um, a little bit of part of the process. And uh, and I think that it, it's it's just a, kind of a another way for TCM fans to get together and participate and hopefully get some also bonus things and discounts and other other special uh, special perks to be part of it. Um, but fundamentally, it's just a place for the hardcore TCM and classic movie fans to come together and talk and communicate um, regarding classic films. So one of the people that I came up here with logged in for their membership while we were here at the apartment and he was going through it and he's like we get to vote on things and and the first thing that came up was Jimmy Cagney versus Edward G. Robinson and we must have spent five (laughs) minutes debating which one well that and that and that's great I mean that's exactly that 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 makes me happy because that is well as you can imagine you know there are a lot of times where we know what we want to do there there are stars that we know we want to feature but there are a lot of times where it's com- comes down to a judgment call or it comes down to you can go either direction. And this year, would we rather have this is our star month or this is our star of the month? And we have the movies and we don't know. And so 
the ideas, well, why don't we throw it out to the to the fan club and let them vote and, and see if they uh, we can get some good feedback from them. And so um, that's the idea there. And, and I'm glad to hear that, that it generated a little bit of debate and discussion because that's certainly what we want. Well, you seem to be throwing a lot of hard choices to your fans because going to the festival, mm. there's, what, six theaters going simultaneously? And it's like you want to see practically every single film. Yeah, either five or six theaters, plus there's Club TCM with the conversations, and every year the people, you know, are, well, wait, I, I can't choose, what do I do? So uh, we know that, that's going, part of the, you know, the fun, I guess, going into it is uh, you're going to have some hard choices, but hopefully at any time there's at least something that you're excited to see, and that's really um, what it comes down to, and there's a little bit of, okay, you know, I'd rather people left wanting more than being, you know, wanting less or wishing it was over sooner. So if you're going to err on any side, it's err on the side of making let people want more. Uh, so I hope we succeed. And yeah, those choices are, those are hard to make from our perspective too, for sure. And for you, what makes for like a perfect film going experience? It's the communal aspect it's being in a part of an audience where you feel like you're all sharing it together you know when 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 one of the great things about being at the festival and watching uh, a movie with the TCM crowd is people are clapping for you know the director the key actors the 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 film composer you know the the cinematographer in the theater people are you know giving raucous applause to to the, you know that doesn't happen usually and, and so you know you're around people who are appreciating this in the same way that you do that makes it a special experience and then you know we were talking about Hunchback of Notre Dame or a very emotional film or if you're in a comedy and people are laughing around you it just feels part of a community which is a it's a nice that's a nice feeling and, and I guess that's that's what makes it special all right well thank you very much thank you Beth I appreciate it I also spoke with Millie DeCherico manager of programming at TCM I asked her if she saw cinemas as churches I do actually I, I haven't been in a church in a while. I'm a, I will say that for the record. But yeah, I, I definitely think that. We had this incident with AMC where they said, oh, I think we're going to let cell phones in to some of the screenings. And there was a really surprising amount of backlash about that, saying, like, no, that's not what we want in our movie theaters. So what do you think about the people who are coming here to the TCM Festival? They seem in particular to really view films in a special way. Definitely. I think they're they're the most incredibly respectful film fans ever. And I think it's because they're true cinephiles. I mean, I think that's the key, right? I think that if you're like a lover of film and you love the experience of attending films, you don't want anything to like disrupt that process. And I always find that the best theaters out there are always very strict about that because they understand that that's, you know, people are there to see something and have an experience. And it's kind of their own and you know there's so many like things that are happening and going through your head when you're engaging with a film in a theater that you know you don't really want to see somebody texting or somebody talking or someone you know being very distracting and I will say in particular for the TCM Classic Film Festival last night at one of the screenings there was a woman who came down immediately and told me that somebody was like taking pictures during the film and I mean it was just like within the first minute of the film starting so that's how serious these people are I mean they 
they really want to enjoy it and they, they don't want any distractions, which is great. And what TCM does here also that's really great is you guys really care about the presentation of the films themselves. And can you talk a little bit about what you guys go through sometimes to get prints and to show stuff on 35 and just make sure that the screening experience is good? Yeah, I think that's a huge, I mean, that is a testament to my boss, who is the head of programming at TCM, and he's the head of programming at the festival, Charlie Tabish. I think that's his singular mission, really. And I know it's others that, you know, Genevieve McGillicuddy, the festival director, and really everyone that's working, I think that's kind of what we strive for when we do this festival, is to just make sure that we're getting the best quality prints. I know Charlie's in touch with all the studios, and he really hears about like restorations that are coming out he kind of keeps tabs with that and I think that that's a big influence on his programming decisions and that's great because there's a lot of world premiere restorations here there's a lot of world premieres here just in general of titles that haven't played ever you know and I think that's again I think Charlie is a great kind of he's a huge film lover but he's also like a guy that you know sort of knows a lot of people and he knows a lot of archivists and restoration experts and people doing distribution so he that's how he kind of works it's great what I love about the festival too is that there's all this emphasis placed on the presentation of the films and making sure everything's great but there's also not really like a sense of snobbery in terms of yesterday I got to see the passion of Joan of Arc with a chorus and a live orchestra and I also got to see roar (laughs) (laughs) so you talk about kind of the breadth of this programming yeah I think it's again I think (laughs) This is reflected in the network, and it's also reflected in the festival. I think that classic film is sort of, I mean, it's really kind of a nebulous term if you think about it, because there's people who are really young that come to these festivals, and they think their classic film is a 90s film. Then there are people who think that classic films are only silence. So, I mean, you kind of have to cater to everyone, and most film fans are kind of into everything, and they're not snobs. And and we kind of were blessed with having like kind of open-minded cinephiles, if you will. (laughs) That's kind of the philosophy behind everything that we do is that classic can mean anything. And, you know, especially now with new movies that are, you know, coming into that term. I mean, classic film now is 80s movies, it's 90s movies, it's 70s movies. So we're just, I think, trying to reflect that in the programming a little. You are connected specifically with the TCM Underground programming. Can you talk a little bit about some of your choices? Last year, I believe, we got to see Boom, which was fabulous at midnight. I mean, Boom and Roar both have this certain quality of when you're going there at midnight after being up a long time, you kind of drift in and out of these kind of weird hallucinatory dream states or something. Yeah, (laughs) definitely last year with Boom, that that was definitely the case. Well, I think it's, I think what's great about Boom and Roar in particular, they're both kind of studio films or, they started. They starred studio stars, like big Hollywood stars, and then it was just in this weird film. You know what I mean? That was made, and it was kind of like a one-off thing, and they kind of fell out of distribution, and nobody had really seen it. So I think that's what makes it special to play at the festival. But then there's also just sort of this weird quality to the films that is really kind of good for an audience that's maybe been up all day, and then they're like, should I go to this midnight movie? I'm kind of tired. I maybe had some drinks. Let me just kind of like wander and figure that, you know what I mean? And that's, I think, a good combo. (laughs) That kind of viewer with the movie, you know what I mean? And they end up being really fun. And I love the audiences because they're super 
fun and a little rowdy, which I like. And it's like a typical midnight movie crowd, which is great. I love it. Talk about the programming choices you make for the films you play at midnight here at the festival and also the programming choices you make for what goes on the air for the network. Well, the midnights are kind of... You know, obviously Charlie is kind of, you know, the final say, but he definitely consults me with the Midnights just because I I think he understands that I program for people that stay up late. (laughs) So um, last year he kind of asked me about uh, what we should do for the Midnights, and I suggested both Boom and Nothing Lasts Forever, which is a a very rare film, and I I don't actually think it's going to be out on home video anytime soon. So that was actually a really good get. But then this year, I think that there was a chance to play Gog in 3D, which I think we had to do because I don't think we've ever, well, we did a 3D film before, but not in the midnight. So that's really going to be great. And we have two of the guys from the 3D film archive that are going to talk about it. And then with Roar last night, I mean, he was just basically like, what do you think about playing this film? And I'm like, well, I definitely am playing it for TCM Underground. So I think we should definitely play it at the film festival. And, you know, of course, there was a back and forth about whether or not, you know, (laughs) people would have violent reactions to what they were seeing, which is always a conversation that we have about the Midnights. But... I think it it worked out. I think people really got a a kick out of it, so. And what are you looking for for the films that you're programming on air? Or what defines underground for you? Right, again, that's another kind of nebulous term. It's, It's kind of, to me, I think the term underground kind of alludes to something specific, but I do make it, I do think of it as a very broad based sort of franchise for us because there are films in the franchise that are truly underground films, like films that have never been on home video and have been bootlegged for ever and ever and ever and ever. And like we've played movies like The World's Greatest Sinner and, you know, some really rare, like we played The Decline of Western Civilization documentaries before they were on DVD. So it was kind of like, yeah, those are underground films, films that are kind of being passed around and they don't have wide release or they never had wide release. But then there's also things like Boom, which are like, studio pictures that are kind of flops and you know like they're kind of shelved but are technically like available and then there's you know kind of the stuff in between just like really quirky comedies really obviously like genre pictures like horror science fiction action so to me it's just kind of like whatever is interesting whatever is either like something that the cult quote-unquote audience would appreciate or maybe something they don't know about or maybe something they want to reconsider it's just kind of like it's a catch-all for just weird things and it's kind of the way I look at it do you also feel it's kind of like a a place for I don't know like lost children like films that you want to kind of just give a little leg up to saying like hey maybe you haven't heard of this well totally and the weirdest part is that I think I think there are movies that well, there are definitely movies that have started in, in underground, technically, but have moved to, like, the primetime slots, which I got to admit, I kind of pat myself on the back a little bit. Like, we're doing a American International Pictures Festival this year, and there's a lot of titles that played in, you know, like old Roger Corman movies and some black exploitation films that are going to be playing at, like, 8 p.m., which I'm like, great. <laughs> I love that. You know, TCM, I think... I think that there's not a, a super big distinction between like an underground title and, but the the goal is to really kind of push the envelope. So, you know, there are movies that have played in underground that are kind of never appropriate for prime time and 
because they've got a lot of content, a lot of violence, a lot of sex, a lot of nudity, whatever. So, yeah, I do think that it, there are some movies out there that are just kind of like too weird and and are definitely lost children, quote unquote, because either they just haven't like become part of that cult, even the cult lexicon, like they're just kind of right there waiting to be kind of rediscovered. You know, maybe that's not an eight o'clock movie. Maybe that's a two o'clock in the morning movie. And then you just have to have people, have it wash over people in the middle of the night as opposed to, you know, which I like. I mean, I like, I like knowing that there's a weird movie out there that probably would never get played ever if it wasn't for underground, so. Well, I think you go in with a completely different mindset when you're going in at midnight to see something. Yeah, totally. So I grew up in the era of like night flight and those kind of like Goulardi, Elvira, like things, I was obsessed with things that come on in the middle of the night when I was growing up. So I was always like on the weekends staying up with my friends watching whatever was on TV at like midnight or 2 a.m. And that is like, those are like these movie memories that I've always had with me. And so there's something about that time slot. I think it's because of like, just maybe the state that you're in, whether, I mean, you know, whether it's you're tired or maybe you've had some drinks or maybe there's some drugs involved, but like, it's just a different world. And I like that. Um, I like that that world a lot. So when Underground kind of became an idea and it got kind of put on the network, I mean, that was kind of, and it still is the kind of mission of it is to just have it on in the middle of the night, hoping, you know, people will kind of come into it and go, what is this? And then they just kind of have the experience of just being awake and watching. So just as I did when I was growing up, so. And do you think that having the TCM brand connected to that underground term helps people to maybe be a little more adventurous and say, like, I'm going to give it a try as opposed to, you know, if it pops up at the midnight movie circuit at, you know, a theater or something like that? Well, right. And this is something that I've I talked to Charlie about a lot um, because he and I are totally in agreement about this. I never want to, like, make any of those movies like I'm not trying to make these movies into like check out the big dumb weird movie because at the end of the day I I think that I I would rather come at it from like I'm not saying it's a serious place but it's sort of like even if it's a bad film quote-unquote even if it's like people think it is the biggest pile of garbage that it was ever put on screen I mean somebody made that movie there's some kind of context to it and like you can kind of have a discussion about it even if it's ridiculous So in that way, I feel like it's really, I don't really have that impulse to like destroy it, like to make fun of it, to be like, you know, this is a pile of garbage and let's just like make fun of it. I mean, that's a part of enjoying a film, but I don't think that should be like the presentation of the film. I think that you should be like, here's a film. I'm gonna tell you right now, it's uncomfortable, it's weird, it's strange, it's, you know, probably bad, but we would like to try to just be, we're not trying to like make fun of it on the onset. And we'll let people decide for themselves if it's good or if it's bad, if it should be made fun of, so. Well, I think the midnight notion or that underground notion, there's gotta be some element of affection for it. It yeah. can be bad, it can be awful, it can be all sorts of things, but there's some some place in that film where you find you love it for some bizarre reason, but I mean, that always seems to qualify midnight movies because I've seen, some, you know, there are some that are just, you try to explain them to people who maybe are not midnight crowds, and they're going like, really? You want to watch that? 
but there's always seems to be this level of affection. Oh, totally. And like that's even if I always say like even if the movie was made for the purpose of making money and there was like no thought put into it. There's at least one person on that film that thought that they were like doing the best work of their careers. Like there was somebody in either in an actor or a director, especially a director, uh, <laughs> or a cinematographer that was like this is totally going to make me I'm the next Orson Welles. I am that person. So in you know, in that way, I feel like, yeah, I mean, it's somebody's specific vision. And like, you know, and you got to love that. You got to love somebody who's like very passionate about making something that just didn't turn out that well at the end of the day. So, well, in Midnight Films, and especially some of the stuff that you run, always seems there, there seems to be something either passionate or extreme about it. Whereas to me, the most offensive thing in a film is kind of mediocrity, like blandness. Yes, I totally agree. Or people who are like, maybe like trying really hard to make it weird. Like, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to really, you know, there are sometimes, especially with new films where you can just kind of tell they're sort of purposely trying to make it bad. And you're going, why, why just like, just do the best you can. And if it's, if you're a terrible writer or something, it'll come through, trust me. <laughs> we don't have to like make it weird, but yeah, I, 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 and I also, yeah. And you know, there's a lot of, um, cult film out there that's, kind of boring and it's you know and it maybe there's some kind of like great you know actor or great you know soundtrack or something like that but yeah sometimes they're just kind of boring films I mean not all of them but like you know they're just kind of hard to watch um and I, yeah those are probably not like my favorite ones but yeah I I would rather have something be bad and then be boring <laughs> so how did you get into films I mean how did you fall in love with movies I have to admit I was obsessed with television when I was growing up. So I watched a lot of film on, on TV and I kind of grew up in the eighties. So there was a lot of, you know, I watched a lot of HBO. I watched a lot of, you know, cable films um, and a lot of public access. So I kind of, I learned about films really through, well, going to the movies with my family and then also just watching a lot of movies on television. VHS was a huge thing when I was growing up, so I had friends whose parents had huge VHS. My parents did not have a good movie collection at all. They still don't. To this day, they have like five DVDs. But um, I would go over to my, the neighbor's house, my friend's house, and their, their dad was like one of those guys that like had tons of taped VHS, and they had like perfect handwriting on all the spines he was like a huge VHS collector so yeah I was just like going through those collections and um you know just sort of like trying to watch a, a ton of stuff I was just soaking it all in so it seems like you have kind of an enviable job do you uh, <laughs> in terms of being able to well to be able to program movies that you know you discover and find I mean is it a job that you enjoy doing oh immensely I think it's I hate to say it, I, mean, I really do think I have a dream job in that way, especially as a person who grew up watching film and then went to film school and then ultimately became interested in programming. It's, a, it's the best job in the world, and especially at TCM, which I always tell people, when you're programming typically for television, you know, you really are kind of dictated by advertising and your, your different shares and, you know, all, these, all this terminology about audiences and stuff. I mean, at TCM, that doesn't that's not really a metric we follow. We just, I mean, we're a non-commercial network, so we really have the chance to be creative. So I think that's a very important part of my job satisfaction is that I don't have to worry about whether or not this movie is gonna sell 
tons of cars or anything like that. I mean, it, I mean, there is, you know, obviously it's a business, but it's it's very creative. And as a programmer, it's like a, a dream place to, you know, work. So, TCM has created this community. It seems here at the festival, you can see there's a lot of support for the TCM party and people who are on Twitter and social media and sharing. What do you think contributes to that? Well, I gotta say, I think the network is really interested in reaching out to their fans. Like, I think that's probably, I don't think I have ever seen it at any other channel. Like, I, I was just trying to think about, would a channel, would any other channel on the, on the cable dial, would they, like, have a film festival and invite their fans to come and have, you know, dinners with stars and hosts? And there's, a lot like, a lot of back and forth between the company and and the and the fans and like the fans program the network sometimes and they I think that that's kind of what makes it a family is that I think that like TCM facilitates these events and these ways for people to connect and especially when you're a film fan you know you really are a classic film fan I will say for sure you know I mean we're kind of like I got to say, like, we got to, like, stick together because we're in an era now where they want people to text in, you know, movie theaters. And, you know, they're, you know, the movies are getting getting crazy out there. So I, I think that, you know, having, like, the hashtags on the social media, having film festivals and parties, and especially coming to the film festival and there's, like, little side parties and fun things for everyone to get together, I love it. And I love that it's, like, I love it when all the Twitter people come together. I love it when the Facebook fans have their Facebook page and do events. But I think it's so wonderful. And But I will say I think that there are networks or businesses that discourage that kind of thing. And I, I don't think TCM is one of them at all. I think they're kind of encouraging it. So. Well, you guys just launched your TCM backlot, and I know my, I'm here with two other people, and we went back to our apartment, and all were logging on and voting on, because they were asking, like, you know, between Edward G. Robinson and James Cagney, we're uh -huh. sitting there like, damn, that's a tough choice, but oh, no. that seems to be engaging people. Right, because that kind of, you know, I, well, we're in an election year, so I think <laughs> that's kind of, <laughs> that's a, you know, everyone's kind of ready to make decisions on things like that right now. Or when they came up with the idea for the backlot, they were like, what, what do you think about having, you know, some of the members or some of the fans vote? And I was like, that's awesome. We should always be doing that. We should always be like hearing, I mean, as a programmer, again, I love hearing ideas from fans and, you know, the idea of people having to choose. And that is a really hard one. And that one in particular is really hard. And I remember they were like, what are, you know, what other, I mean, there's just classic debates like Betty versus Joan and like, you know, that kind of thing where I'm like, so people have strong opinions about that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, we got to like maybe tap in on that a little bit and see what people, because I'm curious to who will win. You know what I mean? Now I'm like, Edward G. Robinson or James Cagney, man, I don't even know. There's, they're like in the same era, but they're kind of got different styles, but they're still both tough guys. So I don't know. I don't know who's going to win. In terms of some of the films you've programmed here at the Midnights, do you remember any particularly strong reactions from audiences? We Boom was definitely a strong reaction, I remember. I think it's because I didn't really give much information about about it in the intro, so I think I just said, you should just watch this film and then let me know what you think. And I think people were kind of like, what was that? That was so deeply weird. Um, other than that, I was really, I'm really curious to find out what hap was gonna happen with Roar, because I, 
I was like, you know, kind of thinking that people, I, I don't know what people were thinking, but everyone that's come up to me today to talk about it has been like, okay, that was really uncomfortable, but I watched the whole thing. So I didn't come running from the theater which is kind of what I thought was going to happen. But I will say that I think Boom was probably, I had the most conversations about that. And I think it's just because it's so bizarre. And people wanted to know what happened and what it was about. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> well, it's funny because we've been going to all the midnight ones and everybody that I was around for Roar was wide awake and watching the whole thing. Yeah. And boom, it was like people were falling in and out of sleep, like yep. some sort of weird dream state. So they would pop back up and it's like, is it still going on? And <laughs> like, what's yeah. happening? Well, that's, that's, I think, the testament to the different like styles of the movie because, you know, boom has got, it's like set on water and there's a lot of pastels and a lot of like fancy headwear and flowing robes so of course there's kind of this maybe I don't know and it's kind of glacial like pacing wise and so yeah it is kind of like a dream so I, I would assume that people were kind of like falling in and out of consciousness whereas Roar is like super high anxiety the cutting of the movie was so rapid and I, I was reading a um a blog today that talked about it last night and I and the writer of the blog said that he thought that they had edited that way because they were trying to avoid showing like massive injuries so they were editing to not show like people's legs being torn up so I thought that was hilarious and, and yeah maybe that's why people were wide awake because they were like couldn't stop watching everything was happening and it was very very anxious. That has one of my favorite taglines on the poster, which is, no animals were hurt during the making of this film, but 70 cast and crew members were. <laughs> and I kept thinking, that can't be like a precise number. There's got to be more. Because 70 seems a really round number, and there's a lot. There was a lot going on in that movie. So maybe they're fudging that number a little bit. The only reason I would give them that number is because I don't think they had enough money to have a whole lot of people working <laughs> <Sure>. on it. <laughs> right. And then I kept thinking, is that over the course of the 11 years that this was made and who gets, who was counted as the cast and crew or like, you know, yeah. So maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe it is a firm 70, but I don't know. I suspect that there's more that we don't know about. Any final words about this year's festival? Anything that you programmed or that is screening that you'd like to comment on? the thing that's different about this year I mean all of them are great and and for some reason they end up getting better every year which I think is really cool I will say that everybody's super nice this year like not to say that everyone hasn't been in, in the past but everyone's being very sweet and complimentary and like I've, I've been walking through the multiplex and it's people like I love your dress I love your hat great this great you know good to see you I just like that it's so positive and it's nice that like strangers well virtual strangers are talking to other strangers and I mean that's always been a big part of the festival but I don't know it's I feel like the vibe is really good this year and I'm I'm pleased about that so I'm hoping that that continues through the weekend and as for the programming I um I'm kind of excited well I was telling you I kind of want to see Rocky so I'm kind of interested in seeing that again and then I'm going to see Band of Outsiders tonight which I'm very excited about because Anna Crane is going to be there and she was a huge hero of mine when I was in college so I'm very 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 excited. Well you mentioned virtual uh, strangers but this notion is is it interesting for you to 
meet people that you may have engaged in in social media and then suddenly getting to actually meet them face to face? Oh, totally. It's been happening every five minutes since I've been in L.A. Like, it's wonderful because, you know, you spend so much time, you know, we have jobs where we have to spend a lot of time on social media and especially with the TCM fans. I mean, they're on social media as they're watching the films a lot of the times. So it's kind of great to just like meet up with everyone and, and everyone feels like a friend before I even catch eyes with them. And when they finally say, oh, hey, I'm, you know, we're Twitter buddies that I just, I hug them. I'm just like, oh, you know, we, we have been hashtagging each other for like two years now and it's great. And I, and I immediately feel a connection to them and it's, I don't think it's weird. I, I love it. And I, I'm like basically encouraging everybody to introduce themselves to everybody because I think it's really sweet, but. Yeah, I love that part of it. It's just meeting up with the Twitter fo- Twitter followers is awesome. So, All right, so we started this conversation about cinema as church. Do you feel that these TCM fans are kind of these devout people and that your festival is some kind of mecca for them? <laughs> I think that's how they think of it. Yeah, I think it's a religious experience. I mean, being in Hollywood where it all happened and that and having the celebrities come in and talk about the movies and having great prints of things and you know respect to sorry the films and everything and I yeah I think people are very much in a you know they're in a religious fervor when they're here and I and I love it and I am too I I mean I I think it's I think it's great and I'm so happy to be here so all right thank you very much oh you're welcome thank you Beth One person stirring this religious fervor at the festival was Paula Guffett, the founder of the Twitter handle TCM Party. She doesn't work for TCM, but she hosts live tweeting events that bring TCM fans together in a virtual living room. She also runs a movie theater in Detroit, so I thought she'd be a good person to ask if cinemas are places of worship. Yes, I believe that it is. I think that a theater uh, watching a film with other like-minded individuals can definitely induce the same kind of transformative experiences as attending church. The most recent example, the most vivid example to me right now is our screenings of Purple Wing, where people got together and sort of worshipped Prince. Um, It was a little bit like attending a service for him. It was definitely for the living to get together and celebrate his life much like it would have been a, you know, memorial service in the church. And tell me, you also run a theater, too. So tell me about your theater. My theater is Cinema Detroit. We are the only first-run, seven-day-a-week theater in greater downtown. And we run, like, a wide variety of films from mainstream to the truly independent. We also do, you know, fun events, like showing a bunch of Nick Cage movies. It's, It's a Nick Cage film fest, Nicholas Uncaged. But... One thing that I've noticed with certain of our documentaries, as well as something like Purple Rain, is like when we showed Amy, same idea, giving people closure, getting together in the dark with other like-minded individuals, and it helps you feel better. You know, similar to like funeral rites are for the living to work through their grief. I think it can also, in, in the best sense, provide a community much like a church, where it's spiritual but not religious. You can sort of be transformed by the emotions that are brought forward by watching the movie. Or you can sort of escape and feel better 
for a couple of hours. It's, it's interesting because my Sunday morning screening at TCMFF was MASH. And whoever introduced the person who introduced the screening, but he said, um, he came out and he was like, all right, so why aren't you guys in church? And everyone laughed. And then a few of us yelled, we are in church. This is our church. This is where we found our community. We're talking about the TCM Film Festival, which is, it would seem that if anybody looks at cinema as church, then the TCM Film Festival has to be some kind of mecca. Yeah, it's the, uh, it's the, the tent revival of classic film, I guess you could say. And then, like I said, I am a Catholic, and I know that a lot of um, people, especially older generations, prayer was like their way to feel better. And I know from doing TCM Party for almost almost five years now, really, that, you know, the classic films are the cinematic comfort food. It's comforting to go and watch your favorite classic film, just flip on TCM. Many times people have said the channel got them through unemployment, illness, you know, all of these things. And that, to me, is sort of like a sustaining force like you might find in a religion. And let me ask you, what led you to start TCM Party, and what kind of a community has that built? The hashtag was coined by someone else, and I was the one that started the Twitter account and started scheduling the parties and started promoting them actively, and then doing like two or three a week <laughs> to build it. I just was overjoyed to find other people that knew who like Joan Blondell and Warren William were. Just, it, I thought it would be a way to help us find each other. And it turned out that was true. And now it's just kind of like a community about all sorts of classic movie goings on. And what kind of turnout do you get for these live tweeting events? It just depends on the movie. Like um, for Wizard of Oz or Casablanca or something like that, it's not unusual for us to, to trend nationally. And in a week, it's not unusual to get 13 million potential views of that tag. So it, it's, there's a lot of people that are paying attention. And talk about going to the TCM Film Festival. What does it mean to kind of make that annual trek there? Uh, it's like a pilgrimage. If we're going to stick with the religious theme, you know, Mecca is not an, a an, um, displaced term for this. Uh, everyone gets together. You're in the, the birthplace of the movies. You're walking over the stars. Um, you know, no one else on Hollywood Boulevard except for us knows who these people are. And um, yeah, you just get together and spontaneous conversations break out about like, you know, Warren Oates and, uh, <laughs> and uh, Thelma Ritter and, uh, you know, people that are pretty much forgotten in current pop culture that everyone there knows who they are. Um, you can always start a conversation with anyone there because you're all there for the same thing. And the venues also. We have a couple of venues at the TCM Festival that are old school, like yeah. the Egyptian and the Chinese. Mm -hmm. As ornate as a cathedral. Describe for someone what it's like, like walking into that Chinese theater to see a film. Well, you come out of the extremely bright sun into the dark. And you go in, and then it's like the most beautiful, ornate, colorful, sort of like murals and, and details of everything. And it has the most insane powder room. 
Yes. It, it's just lovely. I always think of the women. The yeah, women, exactly. The women. And that's what I said to somebody. I was like, oh, look, jungle red. This yes. whole thing is like, it's like being in the women. Yeah, I mean, certainly going into Grauman's is a little bit like going into, um, you know, that sort of ornamentation. You know, you could make a parallel with a stained glass, stained glass windows. Everything there is to draw your eye sort of upward. It's elevating. It's inspiring. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time to talk with me. Thank you. Another member of this TCM social media community is blogger Will McKinley. He likes the idea of cinemas as churches, but that raises some issues for people who engage in social media. I would say most of the people that attend the you know TCM Classic Film Festival feel that the experience is religious in nature. You know, but it's a funny thing, and this is like, you know, this is not the like short, you know, punchy answer that, that you know, any radio producer wants, but TCM Film Festival has a complex relationship with, with cell phones and electronic devices because so many of us, including deputi- people deputized by the channel itself, have to have our devices out to cover events. And so what will happen is the host of the event will you know, get up at the microphone and say, please turn off your cell phones. And a good you know, five to ten of us in the audience at any theater, maybe sometimes more, are there in part to live tweet what a guest is saying about the movie. So this was the first year where I had an audience member reprimand me for having my cell phone out. And the movie hadn't even started yet. And I said to the guy, I'm on your side, right? Like, I'm, I am one of you. I'm the guy who usually says what you're saying now to somebody else. But because of the nature of this event and the nature of the way the blogging and tweeting and social media community covers it, it's a com- where there's a complex relationship with electronic devices. Mm-hmm. That said, once the movie begins, everybody puts away their cell phones. Um, except I did notice this year something strange, and it's happening not just here, but basically everywhere you know where I experience movies, and that is the people taking pictures of the screen to put on their Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or whatever. And, you know, it's a strange phenomenon because, you know, these are images that would easily be, like, Googleable, you know, if they had just sort of done it before they got there. But there's such a pressure, you know, to sort of cover our lives, like citizen journalists, that people need to sort of, I don't know, prove their existence by taking a picture of a movie screen, which is very strange. For people like fans of TCM, coming to the film festival like this, is this something like coming to a Mecca? Yeah, it's um, the TCM Classic Film Festival is uh, something that many of us in the fan community almost structure our, our lives around. And that sounds really kind of sad and tragic but it's like you know it's like an annual reunion because it's not just about interacting with the channel or seeing the movies it's about interacting with a group of friends that you make and in some cases those relationships begin online and then they transition into real life at the festival and in other cases they begin at the festival with people that you know, you sort of meet in your while you're waiting online or in your travels or in your seat. And then those friendships carry over to subsequent years. 
it is like uh, if a religious, like a big part of why some people I know are attracted to religion is because of the community aspect of it. And there is a huge community aspect uh, to the TCM Classic Film Festival. Something probably I think that's unique because when people go to say to Telluride or Tribeca, they don't go because they love Tribeca as a brand. They go because, well, maybe there's some interesting movies that are playing. But here, like they could not tell us what's playing. They could not tell us a single movie that is playing and the festival would sell out. They would sell out every pass level. I have no doubt whatsoever of that because a big part of it is the interaction, the communal experience. Talk a little bit about the presentation of films here because one of the things that makes this festival so nice is they do things like strike a 35-millimeter print for the festival. TCM has been doing the Classic Film Festival for, for seven years. Now, they just completed their seventh year. I've been to all of them, and, you know, I remember the first year it was, you know, primarily the majority of the films were on film, and, you know, there were sort of a handful of digital presentations and people were like, hmm, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, is this the direction that TCM is going to go in? But probably not because they're, you know, a community of purists. And now seven years later we have, you know, and I, I need to do the final math on this, but I'm relatively sure that this is the first year where digital presentations will outweigh, uh, will outnumber presentations on film. And, you know, there was some backlash about that, you know, in the sort of like social media community and the fan community. And, you know, the question came up at the initial press conference and Genevieve McGillicuddy, who's the managing director of the festival, basically said that film is extremely important to TCM, but it doesn't supersede the desire to put on a good show. And if something is only available in a DCP, they're going to go with that rather than not and let the lack of that film hurt the schedule, hurt the, you know, the program. I can tell you that for me this year, um, I made a concerted effort to seek out screenings that were on film. I saw over the course of the weekend, I saw uh, 18 full-length features, and I think a dozen of them were on film. That we're at the point now where that has to be a plan, that has to be a strategy. It can't just be a random, it's never going to be a random thing. You have to sort of make that decision to, you know, and they, and they do give us the opportunity to do that if we're willing to, you know, sort of see films in the smallest of the venues and, you know, arrive early and wait online. And this is the premium that we pay for the, experience of experiencing film on film. For you, that seems to make a, a real difference in the experience of watching a movie. Uh, it, you know, it does here for some reason. In real life, you know, living in New York City with a very active repertory theater community, uh, I'm largely format agnostic. <laughs> but there's something about coming here, this experience of the TCM Film Festival, because of the films I choose to see here, which tend to be older, it feels more, the experience feels more genuine to see them on film. So in the case of a, a programming block, I may look at the four or five or six choices and make my decision based on which one is actually being presented on film. 
And for you, were there any high points this year of what you saw? So the weird thing is that, you know, the the highest point for me, so I'm, you know, I'm kind of a purist. Uh, I strongly believe that this film festival and TCM in general should stick to its core mission, and I have very specific ideas about what that core mission is. Uh, and it basically has to do with, you know, movies from the studio era, um, which, you know, a lot of people think ends around roughly 1960, although you'll find a million different definitions of classic. But um, my high point this weekend was was seeing Batman from 1966 with Adam West by the pool of the Roosevelt Hotel, you know, screened on a DVD, which there's like three or four things in there that kind of fall out of my like comfort zone as a you know old movie purist but it was such a great communal experience you know to see adam west it was the 50th anniversary screening everybody at the pool you know there was hundreds of people there cheering screaming they loved it kids old people people who watched the show in the original run you know just a great like communal shared experience and you know and one of the great things generally about this festival besides the opportunity to see obscure films which is a big part of what I chose to do this weekend I'm going to go home and my friends are going to say you know oh did you see uh you know Talia Shire did you see Rita Moreno did you see Angela Lansbury did you see Elliot Gould and the answer is no to all of those I saw none of those people because I chose to sit in the smallest auditorium and see obscure, uh, older films that I had never seen before. Because that's what I enjoy doing at this. It's, that dis- it's the discovery part of it. And, as, and part of those discoveries also were a presentation on you know, the very earliest sound shorts, um, you know, where they screened two short subjects that have not been seen since 1929 for the first time, newly restored. A presentation by the, you know, the film archivist uh, Serge Bromberg of, you know, lost uh, short subjects and, you know, films that are in the process of restoration. So that for me is, is a big part of why I come to this, those sort of discoveries and those oddities and those strange things and those rare things. And that's more attractive to me than, say, you know, seeing Rocky, you know, which I can see pretty easily anywhere else. The Vitaphone films were especially interesting because it was really, it really felt like this little slice of time that you got back, like a window into a period that we don't have anything quite like that anymore. Well, it is a window. I mean, it's, you know, everybody thinks, oh, well, if you, if you think about, you know, like, when did movies start talking, you know, for the sliver of society that actually has that on their mind, um, you know, most people think, oh, well, movies started talking in 1929 with that, you know, movie The Jazz Singer, roughly, if you know, if you think about it, that's what you think. But in the short subjects, they really started, you know, a good three plus years before that, you know, the, the the Vitaphone shorts were released roughly between 1926 and 1930. You know, as the presenter, Ron Hutchinson from the Vitaphone Project said, they were, you know, shooting two, three, four of these a week. You know, um, they made, uh, you know, hundreds of them. They do exist as a time capsule, not just because, not just as a technological time capsule, but 
in a lot of cases, they capture contemporary acts of the late 1920s, you know, vaudeville comics and, you know, jazz bands and these, you know, odd, like, comedy duos. And there's no other way to see these people, you know, in not even close because they didn't, in most cases, didn't get cast in movies. Some of them survived into the television era and sort of revived their 20s and 30s acts, but this is a very, very unique time capsule, and, you know, it's great news that so many of these shorts, more than 130, have been restored by the Vitaphone Project, and many of those are available on DVD from Warner Archive. For you, how would you describe what would be kind of the optimum viewing experience for a film? If I had to list my top 10 or 20 experiences of seeing old movies in movie theaters, um, probably all of them would come at the TCM Classic Film Festival over the seven years I've been attending. And that has a lot to do with the curatorial brilliance of TCM. Um, and, you know, people like Charlie Tabish, who's the, the you know, vice president of programming. But it also has a lot to do with the audience because these are people who, um, you know, sometimes maybe you'll get a repertory theater audience, you know, that knows their stuff but is so, like, abjectly odd, you know, that it makes the experience kind of unpleasant. And sometimes you'll get an audience of newbies who are, like, overreacting to things because they're unaccustomed to it. At the TCM Classic Film Festival, you can see a doctor offer a patient a cigarette in the bed of a hospital room and people don't start shrieking with laughter because we've all seen this in movies. This is the way it was apparently in the you know dim dark era of the 1940s. But it's an audience that knows their stuff and that appreciates it, is interested in sharing it, and the experiences of these screenings are shared. You know, I closed the festival this year with a screening of uh, of Network with Faye Dunaway in attendance and it was a packed crowd and people were not only cheering appearances of actors and characters but they were cheering sentences and line deliveries and you know um, this is these are like you know these are our people it's like the one weekend of the year where all the weirdos from all across the country and the world sort of gather and revel in their weirdness and share it with each other. And it's like a reunion, you know. It's like a, um, it's probably the one weekend out of the year where all of us feel um, happiest and most comfortable. And to bring this podcast to a close, here's my interview with Miguel Rodriguez, a podcaster himself and the director of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. I decided to interview him on our drive back to San Diego as a means of ensuring that he'd stay awake. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we should keep that in the podcast. Miguel's going to kill us all. Miguel. We're hoping to reach it back to San Diego. No. It's just about midnight on Sunday. The Turner Classic Movies Film Festival just ended a few hours back. And... Miguel Rodriguez of Horrible Imaginings Podcast and I and Nico Will from KPBS as well are heading back to San Diego and seems like a perfect time to kind of reflect back on this film festival and what I've been asking people is that 
in this aftermath of AMC suggesting that they were going to allow cell phones into movie screenings and there being a backlash of people saying no we feel that there are certain things that shouldn't be in movie theaters the group of people attending TCM kind of view cinemas as churches so Miguel does that description feel apt to you um, I think that you can make that connection since uh, view the the experience of attending the cinema and all that goes into it uh, is is at its best it achieves a transcendence and uh, transcendence typically is what people are looking for with religion um, so yeah I think in a way it is it is rather a church-like experience um, because there are certain uh, ceremonies that people uh, uh, that people will try to afford each other and, and certain rites of passage and, and a lot of those things that are typically associated with church going. You can see uh, with cinema attendance, particularly when the audience are deeply, deeply um, devoted to the art of cinema. So yeah, it does, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Plus uh, there's the community aspect as well which uh, a lot of people turn to religion for the community aspect and and cinema is that for a lot of people so I don't think it's uh, off base at all to call to call this a church experience or a religious experience and if cinemas are something like churches it would seem then that this Turner Classic Film Festival is something of a mecca for those devotees yeah, I think <laughs> I think Mecca is a, is a pretty appropriate term, in, or or the Vat or Vatican City or the Wailing Wall or or any number of other highly highly religious places. Um, TCM as a as a brand, as a company, as a network, has for the last for more than two decades now. Uh, built an incredibly loyal following. We'll call them acolytes, if you will, um, and 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 for for very good reason. We can look at TCM as as being as rising above the typical network on television because they have never been afraid of showing films uncut, um, completely commercial free, and. Um, and a variety of programming, a programming that can often include some bold choices that are um, can be unexpected, and that whole this whole idea that that there are we're going to see a history of the cinematic art on television as part of a basic cable package, uh, as the only basic cable channel to have zero commercials, and you know show films in their entirety regardless of you know, profanity or, or, or what have you um, that other TV channels might uh, shy away from. It was always, uh, when that started in the 90s, you know, we couldn't believe it. And it's, it always surprises me still how few, how there's swaths of people out there who don't realize what TCM does for us. You know, I'll post something like, can you believe this? TCM is showing such and such movie and then they're on social media inevitably there's someone who says oh why would you want to see that on tv it's going to be cut or whatever it's like no 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 this is tcm <laughs> having that 
as a, as a resource has always been something that's remarkable and it's so strong that that's why people have this kind of devotion to it this disciple-like attraction to TCM and uh, and when you have an audience who is that loyal then if uh, then by staging an event like the TCM Classic Film Festival which they started in 2010 so this is the seventh uh, seventh annual festival it is like Mecca I think that or, or, or these other religious places I mentioned because these are places that people make pilgrimages to so the idea of the pilgrimage is also you know rooted in, in religion and the TCM Classic Film Festival is a pilgrimage for people these are, there are people coming from other countries all over the states we're very fortunate to be in San Diego, which is, you know, relatively very, very close. So, um, and the act of attending the festival itself is, uh, it requires ritual. It requires knowing what your schedule is going to be. It requires foregoing, like Lent, we have to give up sleep. We have to give up certain meals, uh, um, but it's all for the, uh, for the, the transcendent experience of, of seeing films like, uh, you know, just tonight we saw Fat City and, uh, and Bulldog Drummond Strikes Again, which I had never, both of our films I had never seen before, both were uh, just uh, incredible cinematic experiences, both so completely different from one another that... Uh, <laughs> that it just underscores why I personally love a film festival like the TCM Classic Film Festival because what we're looking you you get this survey of films and the type of films the tone of film it's all over the place you could see something very intense in one block and then immediately go to uh, screwball comedy or or a romance, or, or a horror, or a mystery. It could be anything, as long as, you know, there is some uh, validation by the programmers, either because it fits their overall theme, or what have you, uh, for being on the program. So, uh, it, you get the cream of the crop. Yeah, well, we go to lots of film festivals, but with the TCM Classic Film Festival, you know that you are getting something special. Also what's special are some of the venues. There is the Chinese Theater, which is a landmark in Hollywood. It seats, I think, over 900 people. Going into a place like that is very much kind of like going into a temple of worship and, and experiencing something sacred. And I want you to talk a little bit about last year seeing the Hunchback of Notre Dame there. Yeah, there are, we've seen a bunch of films at, at the TC, what is now the TCL uh, Chinese Theater. Seeing a film there is a, it does go beyond entertainment to something more special. And uh, and Hunchback of Notre Dame last year is as I'm glad you brought that up because it's um, that's a powerful film. We're talking about the one with uh, Charles Lawton and Maureen O'Hara. It's a uh, a brilliant film. And it's a powerfully emotional film. I would venture to say it would fit in nicely with this year's theme, which was moving pictures, a pun being their films that move you. Anyway, I, I am going to uh, guess you mean that my experience with Bill 
Yes. Okay. Well, the, just the fact, it, I mean, first of all, one of the things that TCM does too is they're very careful about the presentation of the films. Yes. So they tend to be restored prints, 35 millimeter prints struck specifically for the festival. And it was seeing this glorious black and white film on a huge screen instead of a small TV screen or on a DVD or anything like that. And the actual experience of watching it combined with the content of the film just right. was amazing. I mean, one thing you can say for the uh, TCL Chinese uh, as opposed to the Egyptian, which is, you know, a wonderful theater in its own right, but uh, the, the, it's the size of the screen and also the, uh, the projection capabilities at the Chinese seem to be uh, a little bit uh, a cut above. And uh, it does look very, very crisp and immersive. It's an immersive experience seeing a film there. You forget that there are borders to the frame because the film becomes the world. Yeah, we saw Hard Day's Night, the Beatles film there too, a couple of years ago, and it was similar. But uh, yeah, with Hunchback, the, the Hunchback film is just a particularly um, powerful one. And uh, one memory of that, that <laughs> that is a little bit embarrassing to relate is uh, we were seeing it with our friend Bill Romero who joined us on my podcast wrap-up of the festival last year. I guess I might have a bit of a reputation for being kind of a, a, a tough, like not very sentimental. I represent a, a, a reputation for not being very sentimental, I suppose, because uh, Bill confessed to me after the film was over, he was sitting right next to me, and, and it's one of the touching scenes with uh, the hunchback um, Quasimodo talking to uh, Maureen O'Hara as uh, Esmeralda. And Bill was trying to hide the fact that, like, the waterworks were turned on and tears are rolling down his cheeks. And he said, Oh, I'm sitting next to Miguel, the horror guy. I better not let him see me crying. And uh, as he's thinking this, he turns to look at me, and my <laughs> the tears are rolling down my face. And he's like, oh, the same thing's over there. And then we both have that kind of bonding moment. <laughs> oh, that's one loud part of the street. And we both have that bonding moment where, uh, you know, you're both experiencing this heightened emotion uh, simultaneously for the same reason. And, and that's a, uh, a bonding experience. And, uh, you know, I think... I think the location and being there and being with that audience, it's all of those elements combined to make that an even more enriched experience. And did you have any high points at this year's festival? Uh, for me, uh, the high point was probably the, uh, the Vitaphone presentation. And uh, the reason I'm going to go with that is... Um, one of the reasons I love classic film is, oh, hold on a second, this is a very tiny tunnel here, it's freaking me out. And we don't want to crash, we don't want to crash. during the podcast. We're, <laughs> we're in the carpool lane, and, and on the five, when you're still in LA, it gets really narrow. It's like it's like we're making the, uh, the, the trench run on the Death Star. <laughs> Stay on target. Stay on target. Use the force, Luke. Um, so, <laughs> what were we talking about? Oh, Vitaphone. Uh, uh, oh, the Vitaphone. Okay. Yeah, so um, one of the reasons I love classic film is 
it's like a, a time machine. Um, I know that seems rather obvious, but you're you're watching. When I watch a classic film, and I'm watching these actors talk to one another and strut on the stage, and and uh, and they're so young and they're so full of life and they're so powerful and. Uh, it's just amazing to think that, that this is a time that is a long past. And especially some of the, um, the studio era classic films from the, from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, where those, um, they're, they're depicting a time that uh, is familiar, but kind of legendary in American history, whether it's a, a Great Depression film, uh, or uh, a World War II era film, you get to see how society changes a little bit and how, how people act toward one another changes a little bit if you watch some of these older movies over a period of time. So this, this, uh, this peek into the past is, is so fascinating for me. And what we got this year with the Vitaphone presentation was uh, a look at some short film. Well, I was—I don't even want to call them films, but some shorts. Uh, essentially, they were um, filmed vaudeville acts, and it was the dawn of the talkie. So this is the earliest examples of sound in films, some experimental sound use of sound. Um, before 1929 and the jazz singer, you had uh, these short things. I think the earliest one was 1926 or 1925 even. Um, so a lot, a lot earlier than I thought. And you get the presentation talking about how it was done, showing pictures of the original projectors with the, um, with the, with the sound part built in, with the, uh, the discs that you would place and have to sync up to match sound to what the image and the, all of these things are, are really fascinating to me. But then when we get to see these shorts, and uh, I know a couple of them haven't been seen for 80 years, which is something else that kind of blows my mind. What they are are literally vaudeville acts. What we saw were vaudeville acts. And, uh, and the idea here was your typical cinema could not afford uh, some of the, it's, it's for, it was basically vaudeville for poor people, I think. So they couldn't afford getting a live vaudeville act. Um, so the studio, they, the uh, studios saw a cash cow there and would record vaudeville acts to sell to cinemas as a, a means for people who couldn't afford to go see Al Jolson to see, um, him on the see basically his act on the cinema and I think that the curatorial uh, aspect of this was really clever because at least three of the seven um, shorts had the uh, the 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 vaudevillians the uh, the comedians the musicians they would make almost a meta reference to the fact that they were filming this instead of being on stage uh, one of them was uh, even a story explicitly about the uh, singer saying, "You know, when I'm on, th when I have an audience in front of me, I can, you know, relate to them. It's almost—he's <laughs> literally pointing out that this is kind of weird that you guys are filming me do this." Uh, and he makes the 
camera guys and crew act like the audience. It was it was actually pretty hilarious. But uh, but vaudeville is something we don't really have anymore. It's it's a a lost art, and it's such a diff- it was such a different world, but also something very very uh, similar to ours in ways that might disturb people. For example, there was a. I wish I'm 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 probably gonna get the ire of a lot of people for not remembering the child star's name, the first short. Rosemary. Rosemary. Or baby. Her, her, her tag was the Child Wonder. I just can't remember her real name. Is it Rosemary? Rosemary the Child Wonder, perhaps? I know it's the Child Wonder. But anyway, so it was it was three <laughs> jazz songs sung by this uh, little girl. I guess she must have been six. And it kind of reminded me actually a little bit of, uh, of whatever happened to Baby Jane, of course. But it did also remind me of things like, you know, really creepy things like these uh, beauty pageants for young children and Honey Boo Boo and Jean-Pierre Ramsey even. It was like, we still have things like that in a certain kind of way where uh, we're fascinated by making tiny, tiny children do bizarre grown-up things. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the act was really fascinating. She was really good. (laughs) It makes it... It makes for a bizarre experience. It was something I certainly had not seen before, so that's one thing I really want is is an experience that is new to me. If we look at cinema's church and TCM is this mecca, it seems to be a very encompassing church when you consider that you have something like the Passion of Joan of Arc with a choir, a live choir and orchestra, as well as the 3D restoration of Gog. You're exactly right. That's what I mean when I say one thing that's beautiful about the TCM Classic Film Festival is it's not a narrow definition of classic film, which a lot of people have. If I go to any schmo on the street, and even if I go to some classic film fans, uh, and and I say, what is classic film? It's going to be something very narrow. Uh, You know, it's black and white. It's old. I've never heard of it, it's boring, or whatever else you're going to get from people who don't know classic film very much. What TCM does that I think is very smart and astute uh, is they define classic film a little more broadly. They, they really are looking at the art of cinema and how that art has influenced our culture as well as how our culture has influenced art and how much... Um, how much of ourselves we see in the films and that can look a, a lot of different ways and and that's why you can have um something like the passion of joan of arc which is uh, an, an unbelievably brilliant masterpiece and you can have gog in 3d which is far far from a masterpiece <laughs> but it has its place in cinema history. Yeah, I talk about this a lot, actually, with... Uh, when I did a... I used to do a film series called Delirio, which was all international films, but it was international films that were kind of like Gog. Uh, they were the, the, the Z-grade kind of throwaway B-movies, but they were kind of... They were popular in the, in the countries in which they were made. 
And one thing I wanted to point out was there, there's this idea of high class and low brow, or high brow and low brow cinema. And, uh, and one thing that TCM understands is that both sides of that spectrum are important. Both sides of that spectrum tell us something about ourselves. And uh, my analogy that I, that I always come back to from that is if I'm, if I'm going to travel to Paris, say, um, there, there are different ways I can experience that amazing city. Um, there's the highbrow, which would be, say, visiting the Louvre or the Arc de Triomphe or something. Um, and then there's what could be the lowbrow uh, analog, which would be going to some pub and buying some of the locals around a drinks and getting to know them on that level and, and singing and dancing and, and things like that. And so I, I view the passion of Joan of Arc as the Louvre and Gog as getting drunk with the locals. <laughs> and both of those are, are totally valid ways to get to know, so get to know other human beings through art. This year, TCM has also launched something for fans called Backlot, which we all got a membership in, and uh, you actually started, logged in to see what you could get, and found that there were actually ways that you could influence programming choices. Yeah, I mean, I think this, oh God, I don't want, I feel like I'm just going to be a cult fanatic here because I love TCM so much and this kind of stuff just makes me love them more where a classic film channel could so easily pigeon them whole, pigeonhole themselves as being kind of old fuddy-duddy fogies and TCM is really good at taking social media and new media and 21st century environments like that and using those outlets to bring classic film to a whole new group of people. I think that's why you have young audiences coming to the TCM Classic Film Festival. LA Weekly just did an article about that exact thing where uh, there, there's a surprising number of young people who go to this and a surprising number of young people who go to TCM. I attribute that to very good programming, but I also attribute that to the fact that they have a really strong social media presence. And what I mean by strong, I don't mean that, you know, they tweet, hey guys, we're going to show this at 3 p.m. They engage on a personal level with all of the fans uh, every day and take that, they know that TCM insane people like us are quite knowledgeable because this is our obsession and so they take our feedback pretty seriously and uh, and they've done that a variety of ways uh, one way they did that recently is they had the uh, the fan programming which I must say I'm very happy to have been a part of um, where I was invited to uh, program a film for them uh, two years ago around Thanksgiving I showed thing from another world and 
got interviewed by Ben Mankiewicz on TCM, which was really exciting for me. And uh, and so I view this TCM backlot thing as kind of a natural progression with what from what they did with that. They're opening uh, this venue up to people now. It, it's a, in typical fan club fashion. It is a, it is a subscription based thing where where people kind of buy their way in. It, it, it does cost a little bit of money but uh, but I have to give them credit for taking their uh, offering the membership to press so we could check it out and, and tell everybody you know that it's worth it and um, based on some of the things I saw and I only granted I only spent a few minutes on it this weekend uh, there are ex there are exclusive videos and and content that I found really I don't even know if TCM would want me to tell exactly what there is but let's just say it involves Dr. Zayas in one of those and so you got me <laughs> you got me right away with that um, so yeah you get ex the access to exclusive content exclusive videos um, trips and stuff like that but uh, but yeah what's really most fascinating is the opportunity to vote on programming for the actual network so you know I think the one of the uh, voting that was up right now I forget the date but they were saying should we dedicate uh, a block of programming to Cagney or to uh, um, E.G. Robinson and man that's a tough choice it's a tough choice but uh but how cool to be able to have a say in something like that um for the you know what's actually going to be aired so i think that's kind of exciting you know you feel a little bit part of of the family that way and um that's always been kind of the fan club thing right that that you're part of something whether it's a mouseketeer or um uh, Little Orphan Annie Club or whatever, and uh, and so they promise that this is going to be the best fan club ever. All right. Any final thoughts on the festival or on the experience of cinema as a religious experience? Um, final thoughts on cinema as a religious experience. Well, the festival, by the way, yeah, I'll, I'll just say that. Every year, it's an amazing experience. Um, it's very, you know, as a festival director myself, it, it's quite, it's inspiring to see a festival of this magnitude with this number of venues, this number of films, this number of special guests and presenters, and this number of days to see it go, to see it happen in a relatively organized and chaos-free manner, you know. It has its moments of chaos, for sure, but my God, what a complicated event this is, and they really do a great job, um, and most of it is spent admiring the, the, this art of cinema that means so much to all of us. Um, as far as cinema as a religious experience, it, as someone who doesn't really have or, uh, a religion, <laughs> I would say that this this is as close as I get to having one. Um, but uh, it's interesting because <laughs> it's a religion where 
you have a lot of people in one place, particularly at an event like the TCM Classic Film Festival, and not everybody agrees on everything, and that's encouraged. Uh, what you know, there are films that play at, at the same time as other films, and you could see Network, and I could see Bulldog Drummond Strikes Again, and uh, and people can make their own choices, and so it's a little <laughs> it's a little bit better than religion in that way. <laughs> I'm a little bit loopy from from the experience of the weekend, but all, all I can say is. Uh, I've got a bit of post-festival uh, depression already, and I just can't wait for next year. All right. Well, I will let you get back to the task of driving us all safely home. <laughs> so far, we're alive. Thank you so much <laughs> for allowing me to talk. <laughs> and keeping you awake. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Ah yes, our pilgrimage has come to an end, but the transformative film experiences will stay with us forever. Thanks for spending time with me in my cinema church. I leave you with more of the music and the choir from Voices of Light. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. And right now, I'm feeling very blessed to have just attended the TCM Film Festival.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.